Hi, I'm Janet Deneef, founder and director of the Ubud Writers and Readers Festival. You're about to hear one of the highlight sessions of our 2019 event, which featured 180 storytellers from 30 countries and was explored through our theme of karma. So please settle in and let the magic of our 16th year continue. Thank you so much and good morning everyone and welcome to uh, this incredible panel of incredible women discussing life after Me Too. My name is Sam George Allen, I'm an Australian writer and musician um, and it is my great pleasure to introduce the panel to you now. Um, we'll start down the end there, Nazla Karabigolu, <laughs> sorry, um, is a Turkish author and resident of Georgia. She escaped political and gender oppression in Turkey and helped create the Me Too movement within the Turkish publishing industry. Nazla has five published books in Turkish and has recently completed translations of two new books for international publication. Um, we also have Sanam Maher, a journalist based in Karachi, Pakistan. For more than a decade, she has covered stories on Pakistan's art and culture, business, politics, religious minorities, and women. A Woman Like Her, The Short Life of Kandil Baloch is her first book. We also have Elisa Vitri Handayani, uh, an internationally published novelist and artist. Her novel, From Now On, Everything Will Be Different, examines how free Indonesia became after Reformasi. She is the founder and director of Intersastra, which publishes the Unrepressed series and holds House of the Unsilenced and Fashion Forwards art events. And we have next to me, Dr. Joan Arakal, author of Slice Girls. She advocates for the modernization of surgery through the removal of archaic attitudes that exclude women from the surgical workforce. Trained as an orthopedic surgeon in India and admitted as a fellow of the UK Royal College of Surgeons, she is the recipient of numerous academic and research awards. It is a, a real star-studded lineup we have here. Please join me in welcoming them. So we're dealing with a fairly big topic here, life after Me Too. Um, I think it's clear now, you know, several years after the movement went mainstream, the wave broke, um, that we're dealing with a complex and multifaceted cultural object, um, and particularly one that appears in different incarnations in different cultural contexts. Um, this is a hashtag that went viral in over 85 countries, um, but obviously our lives and experiences aren't homogenous, um, and so they, they do, this hashtag does mean different things in different, um, in different contexts. Um, so I wanted to start uh, asking you a question, Sanam, to talk about um, the first Me Too case in Pakistan. Thank you all so much for being here this morning. Um, I, as Sam said, I'm a journalist based in Karachi, Pakistan. And my book is about a woman named Kandil Baloch. She was Pakistan's first social media celebrity. So she kind of went viral and became a bit of an internet sensation for her Facebook posts and things that she would say on Twitter and Instagram. Um, she was famous for being controversial, essentially. So, and when I say controversial, I mean things as simple as, um, you know, dressing up and saying, making a video and saying, don't I look sexy today? Or do you like my dress? Or um, promising to do a striptease, things like that, which in Pakistani society rubbed a lot of people the, long, the wrong way. 
Um, she was murdered in July 2016 by her brother. Um, and he said that he killed her because he was ashamed of the things that she was doing and saying online. About a month or less than a month before she was killed, she actually met up with um, a cleric who's quite popular on television shows in Pakistan, on talk shows. He's invited quite regularly on them. Um, she met him at a hotel room in Karachi. And she posted a couple of selfies from the meeting. That was the end of it. But then she went on Twitter after that and she said that he had behaved inappropriately with her. Um, and behind closed doors, he was someone completely different. Here was a man who, was, who had made a career out of being a man of religion, and she said that he was essentially a hypocrite. At that point, we weren't using the hashtag MeToo. Kandil didn't use it either. It was our first big case um, where a woman was essentially saying it, it was her word against his. And the difficult thing in that case was it ended up being a he said, she said, but the she in this case was somebody who became popular and became known because we loved to hate her. We loved to make fun of the way she dressed. We hated um, the rules that she broke, the ways in which she spoke and asserted herself online and sort of tried to make a life for herself on her own terms. Um, we hated the fact that she was trying to become famous by getting attention. So when she came forward and said, this man behaved inappropriately with me, and even held a press conference um, to say, look, I'm getting a lot of threats after I've come forward about this, a lot of journalists in the room turned around and said, you're just another drama queen, and you've been doing all of this stuff for attention, and this is clearly another attempt at that. About three weeks later, she was killed, and the cleric was actually investigated for whether he played a role in the murder or not. But I was talking to Sam about this earlier, that I think that this was really the first case that laid the blueprint for how we were going to start treating women, especially in Pakistan, who came forward, and to first question their character, and to say, well, what kind of woman are you? What were you doing in that hotel room? Why were you there? Why were you dressed this way? Maybe you were asking for it. And unfortunately, that's kind of been the blueprint that's created for every woman who's come forward after that since. Nazla, you, you've written um, about your experiences sort of starting the Me Too movement in yeah. Turkey, and you've said um, that you experienced similar things, similar character attacks. Do you want to talk about that? Yeah. Um, my case is uh, limited with the publishing industry in Turkey, and there is one, one more Me Too movement in Turkey in a TV, TV show industry, but uh, they are going together. Um, what I did was, I was, I was really craving for, for uh, writing that article because all things just began 15, 15 years ago uh, when I, was, when, when I uh, wrote my first short story. And then I, I went to a publishing house and the owner of the publishing house said that uh, he can publish my book if I uh, get laid with him. And then I was, I was frustrated, but in 15 years, I had so many harassments and I heard so many harassment stories 
women, women uh, around me, writer women, intellectual women of Turkey. And then I just realized that um, there is no outcome in, for men in Turkey. They are, they are just getting along what they did. They are harassing women. They are, they are doing harsh things. And there is no outcome. And I'm talking about famous writers in Turkey. Uh, maybe you have read them. And after that, I, I thought that someone should break the silence. Because maybe because of the Turkish culture, when you have a, a shameful sex thing, you have to you have to be undercover, okay? And so I just wrote an article in the uh, mainstream uh, newspaper in Turkey, and then it was it was welcomed. So uh, women women just supported me. And then all the authorities, all the publishing authorities were like, okay, you are doing this, you are disclosing us, and then we'll hate you, and you will be, you will be no longer existing in this industry. But that, that's okay. And yeah, I, I'm proud of starting this issue in Turkey because there was no hashtag me too in Turkey before I uh, wrote this article. So yeah, yeah. Yes, well congratulations. And I think, um, I think maybe something that is missing from the conversation that happens about me too in the West is how vulnerable the women who come forward in non-Western countries become when they make allegations, um, even as, as you did, Naza, you didn't name people um, and, and were still um, attacked for it. Um, Eliza, can, can you speak on that in, with regards to Indonesia? Yes. Uh, I also wrote an article about the frequent harassment that I experience and see all around in the literary and publishing scene in Indonesia. Um, the Me Too here have become also uh, another tool for women to speak up, but we also couldn't name perpetrators. It's still very, very hard for us to name, to speak openly, to speak up online and in panels like this, or even sometimes in private conversations. Why? Uh, I'd like to tell you about two cases. Like, one involves a very famous artist, very famous in his field, and very famous for defending human rights. In the women's movement, I didn't know about this first. I was going to interview him for a UK magazine. And then someone talked to me and said, I need to talk to you before you go to interview him. Okay, what happened? Like, you know, he just raped one of our friends. They're like, he's very evil. Like, I didn't know about that at all. And then another person came to talk to me and said, you, don't, you shouldn't really, you shouldn't meet him, you shouldn't go there, you shouldn't give him platform. 
because he abused underage girls. And nobody talks about it. And even this, this person, the second person, well, both of them are very like brave, outspoken feminists. And even they wouldn't speak to me in like casual settings. Like, I, wanna, I don't feel safe. I want to speak to you in a close room. And they had to whisper his name because they were so afraid that if they speak up, that if people know it was they who speak up against him, his fan base will destroy them, will destroy her. And their career will be over. Their safety might be endangered. <laughs> and that is the challenges that we face here. A lot of people in the human rights defenders movement, they still don't understand about women's rights or that women are human beings and not their properties. And we also have draconian laws that prevent victims and survivors from speaking up. First, you have the anti-pornography laws. So if you talk about the experience that you've been subjected to, you can say, well, that's pornographic. They can criminalize you, they can put you in jail. One person, this is a famous case, um, Ibu Nuril, she recorded the harassment from her boss. And she was criminalized for illegally recording the conversation. And she was arrested, and she was sentenced to six months in jail and 500 million fine. So it is the uphill battle that we face here every day. But we fight. We fight, we fight every day. I'm just one out of many. I'm not even the boldest in the movement. We have amazing women. We are fighting for the law to end sexual violence. This draft law, we've been fighting for it for years and years and years. And still, the parliament won't approve this law. They throw so many lies at the public. They say that this law will take away husbands' privilege over their wives. They say that we will use it to make sex outside marriage okay, that we will legalize um, prostitution. Just all of the, we were trying to protect women and girls, people from being forcefully prostituted. And then they say, well, if it's not forced prostitution, then prostitution is okay. We can't be for that. And we have done so much compromises. Like, for example, from the 15 forms of sexual violence, we compromise to only nine forms of sexual violence. They say, well, forced abortion is one of the forms. And even then, they still say, well, if it's not abortion, then if this law is passed, then will abortion be legal in this country? We already compromised on not putting forced pregnancy or lack of access to safe abortion in the law. Because forced pregnancy is sexual violence. Women aren't just birthing machines. And still, and still, they say that 
it's still we can't have this law passed. This law that would have had comprehensive protection for victims and survivors. But we are still fighting. And as we go on, I'll, I'll speak to you more about the hopes and the ways we are fighting. But that's good for open. Thank you. Thank you. Yes, I have to say, and I should have said at the start of this session, I'm sorry, that obviously we are going to be dealing with some fairly heavy subject matter, um, including sexual assault and sexual violence. So if that's something that you think is going to, um, as we progress, um, accumulate and make you feel upset, please please take the appropriate self-care measures. Um, yeah, this is... It shouldn't be shocking to me hearing this, but in the context of the Me Too movement, especially when the conversation in the West has positioned us as post-Me Too, um, and we've moved on in these conversations to a lot of commentators saying, oh, well, hasn't it gone a bit far? And, you know, don't you think you've got what you've wanted? Having these conversations with women like yourselves really drives home the importance of it continuing as a global, not just a movement, but as a new way of uh, approaching gendered violence and harassment. Um, and I think what you say about you know, fighting and, and taking action against this is, is so important. And I wanted to talk to you, Joan, about the action that you've taken because you have really focused your career on making changes in your particular profession. Thank you, Sam. Good morning, everybody. Um, well, as a brief background, I initially trained in orthopedics in India and then moved on to England and I'll now live in Australia. So one might say I have bridged the East and West in terms of what I see in the world of orthopedics. I'd also like to give you a little statistics regarding orthopedic surgeons. We have over 50% of the medical entrants into medical school being women, and that's pretty much a global phenomenon. But by the time orthopedic training is completed, less than 4% of the surgeons are women. So this is a significant statistics, and I think something that we need to look at. However, since we have initially embarked on the uh, what's after me too, um, I do believe to some degree that the pendulum, the me too pendulum has probably swung far too much to the other end, thereby discrediting a lot of things that we do. And I believe that this is something as feminists, as we see or what we call ourselves, when we call ourselves feminists, we got to think twice. Because I do not believe that we need to be quasi-men. We need to leverage our strengths and not try to emulate men. Because I believe if we try to succeed as a man, we have already failed. So coming to orthopedics, why is the statistic so important? <clears throat> Excuse me. Do we really need to bring in women, or is it just an equity issue? You know, you want, it's oh, me too coming in there, and I want to do. I believe not, because women bring a certain element to any world, including the surgical world and the world of orthopedics. So orthopedics, I could speak for Australia, more or less performs or functions as a, in a cartel-like fashion. And we know that cartels function best when women are excluded. So this exclusion of women is partially aimed at maintaining the status quo, 
which actually provides or gives them a monopoly status. And is this important? It is important. It's important to everybody who has to access an orthopedic service. Because when you act as a, act as a monopoly, you do not have competition. When you do not have competition, you can charge extortionate prices. And you can foster mediocrity because there's no threat of competition. You know, you've got plenty of patients coming your way. And then there's the question of unnecessary procedures being done. Nobody much to question you because you're all part of the boys' club. And then there's the question of lack of science and research. Because women, has, it has been shown throughout the medical world, say, for example, oncology, wherever women have come in, they bring in science and research and actually enhance the speciality. So for any speciality to advance and for it to modernize, it is important that we include women. I do not believe that women need orthopedics, but orthopedics definitely needs women for its own enhancement. I believe women have a civilizing mission and to bring in a new flavor into the world of surgery. And this should be done not at the cost of our femininity, because the moment we sacrifice our feminine traits, which are truly our strengths, because we have a certain proclivity towards maybe breastfeeding, nurturing a family, leadership qualities, running as, as a, being CEOs, running countries. We've seen that, you know, women leaders have been running Asian countries for a long time and with good effect too. And the statistics have shown by the NHS that women actually make as good or possibly better surgeons. So these are the things that we need to harness on. So I believe men are not, you know, often like Jermaine Greer said, we're not aware of how much men hate women. I do not believe men hate women. After all, they are fathers to daughters and husbands to wives and sons of mothers and brothers and sisters, you know, who they love and respect. But what I believe is that they fear women because they would break up cartels, they would bring in a different flavor, and would not allow them to continue as they are. Sanam, we were talking before a little bit about the social media response to Me Too, um, particularly with regards to certain cases that have happened in Pakistan. And you mentioned um, that you know, often the response uh, from, from people watching on social media is both a voracious appetite for the sordid details and a very short attention span. Um, do you want to speak, speak to that a little bit? So with Me Too, I feel like it is mostly in developing countries with people who may not have access to writing an article or um, sort of speaking their truth or telling their story uh, in an interview or to have that platform, social media offers the easiest outlet for you to come forward, to find a community, to say, look, this has happened with me as well, or this is my story and I want to share it. And at least you get to say it. There's a lot of power in saying it and finally sort of maybe sharing something that you've been holding on to for years, maybe not even naming the person who's done something. Um, the problem that I think we're seeing happen with that is that, especially in Pakistan, people are becoming very savvy to the fact that this online space is now being used to share stories about perpetrators. 
So what's happening is that young men and women are coming forward and saying, well, my boss did this, or this prominent personality, or this politician, or um, this man I know did such and such thing. They're sharing their stories. They're getting a great deal of support, and people saying, okay, we hear you, we see you, we're sorry about what happened. But what's now happening is that the perpetrators have understood that they can use the cybercrime laws to act against these people. So you can very quickly sue them for defamation. You can say, well, you don't, which I think is very similar to what you're talking about, um, to sue them. And then what ends up happening is the initial story gets subsumed into a very messy legal case. And a lot of young men and women who are coming forward maybe don't have a lot of knowledge about the consequences, what can actually happen once you end up you know, being sued or in a courtroom. The case can drag on for very long. A lot of them may not have the financial means to go through something like that. And I think they're then placed in this bind where you've come forward, you've gotten that little bit of initial support and people saying, we're so sorry. But then the next day, those people are getting a dozen more stories of other people coming forward. This is just so across the board on every level in small ways and large. It's not just about rape, it's about your boss behaving inappropriately with you or someone saying, well, if you want a raise, you have to do this thing or you have to behave this way or making inappropriate comments. We're getting a flood of stories and I think that as viewers on social media, we're consuming these stories, the next day we're on to the next one, and the next one, and the next one. But the people who are coming forward are getting stuck in that moment, and then having to deal with the fallout. Fallout in your homes, fallout with your partners, um, fallout at work. I'll give you a very small example of one woman I met. Um, a, she worked at a university, she was a professor there, and a man started, uh, another professor, he started photoshopping pictures of hers, naked pictures, and putting them up online. So her students could see it, parents of those students could see it on Facebook. She went to the FIA, which kind of regulates um, these kinds of instances, and a couple of months later, she gets a phone call from a man, and he says, listen, I've just been arrested. They found me guilty of putting up these pictures. Can you just have a word with them and let them know that I didn't mean to do any harm. This was just, you know, me messing around. Could you just have a chat with them? That authority gave that man her personal number. She goes home later that night. She tells her husband what had happened. She hadn't told her in-laws any of this. At later that night, there's a knock on the door. It's that man with his whole family, including his mother. And they turned up and they said, well, they gave us your address because they said, you know, don't get stuck in like a long legal case. How about you and I just sort this out? I'll apologize to you and that'll be the end of it. And I'm a family man. Look, here's my whole family. Here's my wife. Here's my mother. So this woman's husband and her in-laws, and she's suddenly in this position where her personal details have been shared. She had no idea when she came forward that she's gonna get sucked into something like this. And all those people on social media who had been saying, well, we're so sorry and this is terrible, they're not there in that instance to help you out. They're not there to sort of walk you through that, to figure out what you can do. 
And when our authorities have not been trained to deal with such cases sensitively with empathy or to understand what to do, you wind up in these instances where you're even worse off. So I think a lot of people now are starting to get scared about coming forward because they're seeing that this is the fallout. This is what's happening after Me Too. It's not a happy ending necessarily. Well, I mean, when we're tackling something like I mean, it is an enormous structural issue, right? It is a, a near global problem, the subjugation of women through all kinds of means. And yes, when we're, you know, movements like Me Too come up and you feel like maybe we're making headway, but it, it is a huge task, right? To dismantle a, a way of being that has been that way for a very long time. So I'm going to open this up to the panel. It's a very big question. How do we do this? Yeah, please. Um, this is where I think uh, when we keep talking about equality, I believe we're doing ourselves a disfavor. The focus should be more on equity rather than equality. Because equality is one size fits all. It's like saying if an earthworm can climb a tree, just like, you, then it succeeded, but it can't. Uh, it's Albert Einstein who said that everybody is a genius, but if you're going to assess a fish's uh, fish, uh, fish capability to succeed by him climbing a, uh, the fish climbing a tree, then the fish is going to believe all its life that it has failed. So I think the importance today is for us to succeed as women. So the feminist movement where it focuses on equality is probably uh, swinging the pendulum to the other end and taking away what is essentially us, the grandeur of our gender. The focus should be, and gender neutralization or gender blurring of lines, again, is quite disturbing to me. If anything, I think we should be focusing more on accentuating the gender differences. So for example, if you know, um, I cannot bend it like Beckham, I can do certain other things. <laughs> So uh, wouldn't, wouldn't I want to focus on my strength, just, like, just as much as a man could focus on his strength and try not to wear lippy and wear high heels? So there is a difference between equity and equality. And I believe equity can provide equality, but equality cannot provide equity. Yeah, that's, I, yes, I, I, I would agree with you. But I also think we need, in order for that to be a practical method of dealing with things, we have to get everyone to value the feminine as much as you do, and I think that is a big, a big, big hurdle. Um, but it, Eliza, did you want to talk about about this particular issue? Um, yeah, I, I also agree with you that women have our strengths, and we should acknowledge gender and not be gender blind because a lot of our oppression came from our gender, and that should be acknowledged. And but I also think that first, yeah, we have to see women as human beings, not as properties, not as objects. And practically, in our context, we've had support groups, and you know, we provide women-only spaces, because sometimes that is what is, what is needed, that is what is required. A lot of victims and survivors may be uncomfortable opening up in front of, especially cis-het men. 
um, and the movement, solidarity between women, sisterhood, and not just, you know, cis with a C, sisterhood. We have our differences, we have our different ways of fighting. There are some bold, outspoken activists who speak very loudly all the time, and there are those who are more soft-spoken and try to be more gentle, more in their argument. And, and that's okay. For me, there's not a wrong way, and there's not just one way to be a feminist. Because, and also, you know, practically people listen to different styles. Some people may not listen when I speak, well, you know, thank you for what you did, but I think this it is, and, and but thank you. And some people will not listen to that. They just hear the thank you and thank you. They don't listen to the criticism. So they need someone who's like, listen, okay? But some people, they don't respect well to that. They feel antagonized. And some people will listen more to the ones who use the softer methods. And that's fine. We don't need to fight among each other. What we need is just to support each other. And that's what. So uh, can I talk about my, my house? Okay, we did a, an art project called House of the Unsilence. And it's a, it's a huge collaborative art project with, uh, with various uh, art mediums. Artists and writers, uh, musicians, performers, dancers, uh, working with sexual abuse victims and survivors to create works about surviving, about healing, about seeking justice, about friendships, about how they be, find strength. Um, and why, why do we do that? It's also our way of fighting because one, it's so hard to speak up in person. It's so hard to speak up online. So we thought maybe if we speak through art, it will be first safer, and second, it can also be a means for you to for healing. Um, and we can create this community of survivors and victims and writers and artists, allies coming together behind the cause, and we can provide the media with fresh angles to report on sexual violence. So it's not just like when something happens, you put up news about it. You can also, because we also cover everything from um, Islamic perspectives on, on sexual violence, um, on the 1998 mass rapes in Indonesia, about media treatment of sexual violence cases. Um, so different angles, so we hope that that the, the public and the media will realize that this is not just a problem every time something happens, but also like lack of sexual education in schools, lack of health services for victims and survivors, lack of psychological counseling services. And we hope that in the end, to have this big house that is full of survivors' stories and artworks where we came together and scream and dance and cry and hug each other and roar, and we want to make the world listen. So last year we did it in a gallery, but next year we actually want to have our own house. So right now we're fundraising uh, towards that. So yeah, please wish us luck. We, hope, we really hope we can do it again. And we want to put up the model so this can be replica replicated in different countries with their own, according to their own contacts. Yes, thank you.
All right, this will be my last question before I open, uh, open up to questions from the audience. Um, and this is for the whole panel as well. I wanted to um, put me to into the context of this year's Writers' Festival theme, which is karma, obviously. Um, do you think that what we're looking at is a reckoning for you know people who have taken advantage of these systems? Do you think we have further to go? Are we looking at karma in the form of the Me Too movement? Nazla, maybe you have thoughts. When you when you when you disclose and when you tell your story, I think you are not seeking revenge. You are not seeking revenge because what's done is done and you got just that feeling, you are carrying it on your back all all your all, all your lifetime. It is, I think, yeah, I want to believe in karma. I really want to do that because um, depending on my experience, uh, it is really hard to say that. And Eliza, thank you. you. You just, we have the same, totally the same in Turkey. And my life, if it is karma, my life is totally changed after the article because many women came to me and they wanted to uh, tell their stories and they asked me, uh, Nazle, I got, I got this from this man. Is it a harassment or not? I cannot decide, okay? Then, then we, just, we just began like this and then I've I been told uh, the one of the most popular fiction writers of Turkey uh, is a is a rapist, okay, and uh, his victim. She is she she is, she cannot talk about this issue, and you know when you when she uh, talked about this and when she disclosed him. Nobody believed, believed her. Yeah, uh, this, is, this is like a, a movie, yeah? Yeah, it's hard to believe, but it's true. And then I realized that I have to carry their sorrows and their experiences also. So uh, yeah, you are doing a great thing for sharing. But um, when it comes to Turkey again, we cannot organize these things. And I think this is because of the current uh, governmental issues also, because the uh, feminism or the women's conditions are supported by the governments. And if you, if you are uh, living in a country which is a high ratios in uh, Women, women, uh, women homicides. Then you just, you just begin to wonder that will I be killed this evening, or will I be making my way home safe? And yeah, uh, you, you, you just, you just want to stay safe, and you just carrying this sorrow, this sadness. But still, you are not looking for revenge. You just want to talk about this. And when you talk about this, you realize that 
you are, you, are, you are alone because nobody wants to hear about that harassment and rape thing in our publishing industry because they, want, they do not want to lose money because the writer is so popular, he is making good money, and they just close their eyes and shut their mouth up. And it is, it is just going the everyday life is always the same. There is no outcome. And you just, you just uh, sitting there by yourself. What should I do now? And then when people like me, yeah, there are many people, there are many women in Turkey uh, dealing with this Me Too, Me Too thing. But my experience is I was, I was left alone. And I just, I just had the thing that all the doors was shut into my face. And then I realized that, yeah, I'm doing the right thing. Yeah. 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 So if, if, if karma exists, I don't know. I, I, don't want, I don't want my harassers to be harassed as, as, they, as they do to me or to other women. But yeah, the uh, time and time and space will decide on this, I think. Does anyone else want to speak on that, or shall I open to questions? Just Sarah? very yeah. quickly, I just wanted to add that when we say a reckoning, um, or when we say karma, I think for a lot of people that's a very scary concept in this, to be held to account for things which I know for a lot of people, they've behaved in certain ways which a culture or a system has enabled. And they've done things maybe, and I'm not talking about, for instance, something as serious as rape. I'm talking about the small, everyday transgressions. You might do certain things in your workplace with a partner, with a friend, which you don't realize is crossing a boundary. Perhaps they don't even realize it. I think when this Me Too movement started, a lot of women actually realized that they'd had many, men and women, realized that they'd had many experiences which fall under that umbrella. I think that what is really needed right now is to, to have a space where it's okay for someone to say, I think I messed up, I think this was wrong, I'd like to apologize, I'd like to make amends, and for people who are willing to do that, to be accepted. I think what we're seeing a lot of, especially on social media, and that's kind of the culture on social media, is to say, well, you're canceled, um, we don't want to have anything to do with you, anything they do in the future, someone will turn around and say, well, didn't you like flirt with that woman or man or behave this way when they didn't want it? And they, it'll constantly follow them around. So even just making amends, I think a lot of people hold back from that and admitting. And there needs to be some space for those people. Again, I'm not talking about people who actually perpetrate serious harm and refuse to acknowledge it. But we need to allow for people to also have that karma come to them to say, you're right. I apologize. I think we've lost the importance of the apology and actually acknowledging that you've done something wrong. And then to be accepted and to move on after that and to do better, really, after that. Yes. Thank you so much. Yeah. Did you want to speak on this uh, as well? Yeah. There are several instances uh, in Indonesia of organizations that choose to, one, cover 
sexual abuse allegations, and the other was to actually acknowledge this and openly investigate it. And, you know, obviously, I think it's so much better to, yeah, do what you did. And even when it's like serious sexual abuse allegations, say like, yeah, we, we've received allegations that one of our employees or, or partners are, have been, and, and, and we're gonna investigate and we're gonna turn the case over to the police. And that organization gets so much respect instead of others who are like, oh, that doesn't happen. Oh, no, oh that's not so bad. Oh, that's just rumors. You know, and, and if we say that, if you make allegations, it follows you, it ruins your career, but in a lot of cases, unfortunately, that's not true. Like that, that artist I mentioned, he's still very famous. And the, the, the man who harassed the, the lady who recorded him, he was promoted. So, so in, in many ways, there are no repercussions for, there are no repercussions for the perpetrators. But what it has done, what the, the karma, karma, I guess, suppose, in, in, in our kid, that it has made us stronger. It has made the women movement even more committed and even stronger. And we will do everything we can to make sure that things get better, if not now, at least for the next generation. Just, uh, just uh, uh, I want to add this. Uh, if you want to do that, I think, uh, first of all, women uh, in all sexual orientations should get rid of that masculinity thing, okay? Because uh, mas masculine, masculinity is, is like a disease, yeah? It's, it's like a disease, and it is so sad uh, seeing women who had that strong masculinity thing, uh, I mean that uh, patriarchal masculinity. Like being in the boys club? Um, yeah. Like being like, and, I'm, I'm and one of the boys? Yeah, and I, don't want to, I didn't want to say that, but yeah, most of the publishing, Turkish publishing industry, women writers are supporting those harassers, okay? So yeah, it is the, uh, maybe the most important thing to get rid of to understand feminism better, we should uh, learn about masculinity and talk about masculinity and get rid of it. All right. <laughs> All right, thank you so much for the panel for responding to, to my questions. And now I'm gonna open it up to the audience. Um, does anyone have questions for this incredible group of women? Uh, yes, we'll go to, to there in, in the second row. That's a great question. Who wants to respond to this? Maybe, maybe Elisa, do you want to respond? I think so, but that also depends on the perspective of the women, because we've also seen women who doesn't have the inclusive feminist perspective, women who still, uh, who still subscribe to the patriarchal way of thinking. Um, so in order to have more w women in leadership, we need more awareness 
uh, stronger yeah, women in, in civ civil society. And, and if that happens, then women in leadership, I think that, is a, that, that's, that can be a part of, of the solution, not only in government, but in all, all sectors, in business, in the arts. Mm. I think so. And that's if there's what, that's what Joan was talking about, wasn't it? You know, um, privileging the feminine and then using that in positions of leadership. Yeah, that's right. Uh, I do believe that. You know, um, I, I like to celebrate masculinity. I I like the exuberance, their uh, enthusiasm, etc. And I do believe boys should be boys. But all I'm asking is, let our girls be girls. Let us not try to modify their activity or their actions in the mold of a man. And I do believe. We need more women in governance, but I don't believe in mentoring or quota systems because women are not deformed or uh, men with some, some kind of quasi-men who need to be mentored. All you need is to prevent them from, you know, like you say, uh, don't give us a leg up, but just take the leg that's holding us down, take that away, and then we'll be fine. Yes. Great, thank you for that question. Do we have another one at the front? Sure. Thank you very much. It was a really, really inspiring discussion. Um, I'm an artist, feminist artist, and art psychotherapist and birth activist, and I work with pregnant women healing their Me Too experiences. But to respond to your comment about... Um, Dr. Joan Arakel. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> I'm here, that's my job. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Um, about not women not sort of simulating the masculine model or way and becoming like men and to empower the feminine and I'm just wondering I, I have quite a lot of ideas on that topic but how do you see the um, the feminine you know what what does the feminine mean to you and if we're thinking of young girls to sort of be empowered feminine um, you know what what does what does that look like and I'm not saying that we should put men down I think they have great qualities as well but but what is the feminine to you? I believe uh, as women we have a certain proclivity like you know nurturing which is part of us being able to uh, multitask is a word that nobody likes but we are multifaceted we are able to do and we are good leaders look at the state of countries where they have women leaders and countries like India have had leaders 50 years ago and it's still not coming to the West. You know, we just had uh, a woman leader in Australia and she didn't last long. So what is it that makes us uh, nurture these women and keep them in their position? And interestingly, I'm referring to Indira Gandhi, if you might know, in India. She had a family. So, you know, it wasn't exclusive that being a leader would exclude you from doing the other things that, as a woman, I'd like to do. Have children, breastfeed, run a home. So yeah, so this is where the question of equity comes. For example, as an orthopedic surgeon, when I did apply for a training position, I was told that she's got, she'll be able to do orthopedics. In fact, she's got all the makings of a good orthopedic surgeon, provided she could overcome the difficulties of, having, being, of being married and having two children. So where is the equity here? They are judging me equal to a man, which clearly if the young men, you know, running around with a wife sitting at home and doing this stuff, is not able to, they cannot compare that to me. So they made me equal to a man, and that isn't working in my favor. Yet on the other hand, if they provided me with conditions that would allow me to nurture my womanhood while simultaneously following a passion and excelling in what I need to excel in, then that's what we need to aim for. 
responses from the panel? Yeah. I think uh, there's a distinction between being a man and the masculinity thing, because masculinity brings patriarchy and power. Uh, so we should be careful with these uh, definitions. And the feminine is, I think, is a constructive thing that, um, that uh, tries to uh, construct, re reconstruct what the masculinity uh, ruined. So, yeah. For me, yeah. Yeah, great. Can I just say one thing? I do believe toxic masculinity is just as bad as rabid feminism. Okay, thank you. More questions? Yes, hi. Uh, thank you for such illuminating discussions. Um, I have a question about, because you were mentioning a bit about the post Me Too. Uh, where we are right now. Um, I'm Indonesian and the converse conversation surrounding the women movement and feminism in Indonesia, um, I feel that it's getting more and more convoluted. I don't know if Eliza, Eliza would, be, would agree on this, but basically there are so many messy conversations around it and that uh, it contributes to the fact that the feminist word itself has become almost derogatory. Um, like people are getting more and more comfortable identifying themselves uh, with the feminist movement. Um, I'm wondering uh, what do you, what is your opinion about that? Uh, is it also happening in your uh, countries? And also, um, how do we ta tackle that? How do we make people comfortable with the word feminist? And because I do hear this a lot, you know, like a lot of my friends, for instance, who really, I feel that essentially they are a feminist, but they are so uncomfortable with the word, they would be saying, oh, I'm not a feminist, I'm a humanist. We know a feminist is a humanist. So um, what, what, are you, what, what are your thoughts about it? Um, I can understand your uh, frustration and confusions because where we are working, we're tackling very, very hard issues and trying to dismantle oppression that has been going on since the dawn of time. And there are a lot of issues within feminism and sometimes people like, so what is, what is it, what it really is? I mean, for me, the core of it is the acknowledgement and treatment of women as human beings. And what that means, there's so many, there's so many issues. Sexual abuse, one of them, education, work. Um, there are so many things, so there are so many issues, so I can understand that some people feel that, like it's, that it can be confusing, um, and there are different ways to fight. Like I said, like some, some feminists are very outspoken and some feminists are very soft, using soft approach and so, and so many others in between. But what we shouldn't lose fact, we shouldn't lose sight of our common goal is what I think is important, how we can like rise above all these smaller differences that we have. And, and don't let that break us. Because we are, we are facing tremendous challenges that if we focus on the smaller differences, then we are, we are hurting ourselves. So we, every time we have these squabbles, so like which is the better way to fight? I mean, it's, it's important to have these conversations, but we must also remember 
that we are, we are still fighting for a common goal. And if feminism has become a bad word, I don't think that's our fault within the movement. I think it's the stigma that society has given to women who dare to speak up, who dare to not fall in line. So I think we should actually fight this stigmatization. Thank you. I think we have time for just one more question. Yeah. All. Um, how can we then unify women so that we fight? Because at Clementine Ford's session the other day, she said, oh, I think she said, we're all too nice. So how can we stop being, and you all seem really nice, but angry as well. So how can we as women unify? When are we going to unify and march and change this oppression that we are all facing and have not shifted? When, how can we do that? I feel like we're kind of doing that in this room though, don't you think? I mean, it doesn't have to be a Women's Day march, maybe. It doesn't have to, those are all great forms that it takes. Maybe you're not attending a meeting, maybe you're not, um, you're in this space and you're talking and you're asking good questions and listening. I think this is all part of it. You're gonna take things away from the stories we're telling from our countries. You're gonna go on to talk about it, have conversations um, with your friends. And I think a lot of that is part of it. It's listening, it's being able to listen. It's valuing someone else's experience and kind of offering support however small. It could just be to you see someone on social media, they've shared something, and you say, well, okay, I support you, and I'm here for you, and it can be in much bigger ways, campaigning, and as Eliza said, there's so many different ways to do it. I don't think it's as narrow as, um, you know, when do we get together, and, you know, it, it can just be across the board, and it's men and women. We're focusing on women a lot, but a lot of men are such great feminists. A lot of men may not call themselves that, but a lot of them in this room, listening to this discussion, being open, being willing, they're great feminist allies too. Just add one very quick thing. For every criticism that you say towards the Me Too movement or the women's movement, please apply the same fervor and passion with criticizing what we are protesting against. Well, I think that brings us to the end of our session, and thank you for being an incredible, engaged audience. And please join me once again in thanking our amazing panel. Their books are available in the bookstore, I think. Yes, everyone's books are there. Yes. Um, please have a wonderful rest of your festival, and thank you again. Oh, and also we're, we're having merchandise to sell for, you know, fundraising. So um, we have it at the bookstore, but also with this gentleman over here for, like, products that they don't have at the bookstore. Thank yes, you. Please go, please go spend your money there. All right. Thank you, Vornazli Karabi Kohlu, Sana Maher Eliza Fitri Handayani, John Arakal, and Sam George Allen for your time. Thank you for your coming as well. And if you're interested to buy the book written by John Arakal and Eliza Fitri Handayani, it's available at Periplus booth over there, back at uh, your chairs. And to sharing your experience with us, with hashtag UWRF19 on Instagram, you can visit the Microsite UWRF19.com. 
So please take all of your personal belongings with you as we will be coming through the venue to clean in the 15-minute break. And the next session in this venue will be Walk the Town. Thank you.